The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. Live from our nation's capital, it's Deadline D.C. with Brad Bannon. Welcome to Deadline D.C. with Brad Bannon. I'm Brad Bannon. I'm a national democratic strategist, a columnist for The Hill in Washington, D.C., and a political analyst for KNX in Los Angeles and WGN in Chicago. My company, Bannon Communications Research, polls for progressive issue groups, labor unions, and Democrats. BannonCR.com is the sponsor of today's show. If you want to, uh, if you have want to find out more about me or my political polling company, or if you have any ideas or suggestions for Deadline DC. The best way to reach me is on Twitter. My Twitter handle is Brad Bannon, all one word. Today on Deadline DC, in the first half hour, our guest will be Craig Jackson Jr. He is the advocacy director of the Community Justice Action Fund. Greg joins us to discuss uh, the problem of gun violence. Then in the second half hour, We'll do, as we usually do, our provocative progressive political panel. The guests on the panel today are Edwith Theogene from the uh, from Generation Progress and liberal activist Mark Grimaldi. Uh, first, uh, we have a uh, clip to play you from Joe Biden uh, talking about uh, gun violence in an address to Congress. You know, it's estimated that 50 women are shot and killed by an intimate partner every month in America. 50 a month. I need not tell anyone this, but gun violence has become an epidemic in America. The flag at the White House was still flying at half-mast for the eight victims of the mass shooting in Georgia, when 10 more lives were taken in a mass shooting in Colorado. And in the week in between those two events, 250 other Americans were shot dead in the streets of America. 250 shot dead. I know how hard it is to make progress on this issue. In the 90s, we passed universal background checks, a ban on assault weapons and high-capacity magazines that hold 100 rounds that can be fired off in seconds. We beat the NRA. Mass shootings and gun violence declined. Check out the report over 10 years. And I'll do everything in my power to protect the American people from this epidemic of gun violence. But it's time for Congress to act as well. I don't want to become confrontational, but we need more Senate Republicans to join the overall majority of Democratic colleagues and close the loopholes required in background check purchases of guns. We need a ban on assault weapons and high-capacity magazines. And don't tell me it can't be done. We did it before, and it worked. Talk to most responsible gun owners and hunters. They'll tell you there's no possible justification for having 100 rounds 
and a weapon. What do you think, deer wearing Kevlar vests? They'll tell you that there are too many people today who are able to buy a gun, but shouldn't be able to buy a gun. These kinds of reasonable reforms have overwhelming support from the American people, including many gun owners. The country supports reform, and Congress should act. This shouldn't be a red or blue issue. And no amendment to the Constitution is absolute. You can't yell fire in a crowded theater. From the very beginning, there were certain guns, weapons, that could not be owned by Americans. Certain people could not own those weapons ever. We're not changing the Constitution. We're being reasonable. That, of course, was President Biden uh, in a joint address to Congress discussing the problem of gun violence. And to discuss the problem of gun violence today on Deadline DC, uh, our guest is Greg Jackson Jr., who is the National Advocacy Director of the Community Justice Action Fund. Uh, the fund is a nonprofit organization building power for and with communities of color to end gun violence. Welcome to Deadline DC, Greg. Thanks for joining us today. No, thanks for having me, Brad. It's an honor. Okay, let's, uh, last uh, Friday was National uh, Gun Violence Awareness Day. Uh, and to do, uh, I was doing a little research. And astonishingly, already through the end of May, more than 18,000 Americans have died from gun violence, which means, sadly, if it continues, that rate continues at its present pace, that means more than 40,000 Americans will die of gun violence this year. Uh, why do you think, you know, I mean, I, I feel very frustrated. This has been an issue that's, you know, going on for years. Uh, you know, there's there have been all sorts of tragic shootings and massacres, uh, but uh, the the violence, this mass senseless slaughter goes on. Uh, why isn't any, you know, why hasn't there been any movement uh, to reduce gun violence? Uh, you know, we used to have an assault weapon ban, but uh, Republicans in power overturned that. Uh, we don't even have, there are all sorts of loopholes in universal uh, background checks for gun purchases. Uh, it is incredibly frustrating. You know, what can you tell Americans who are frustrated about the inability of the government to deal with this tragic problem? Yeah, <clears throat> I think um, what's really important to note is that we failed for so long because we haven't taken a comprehensive strategy to addressing gun violence. Um, gun violence at this point has become a public health crisis. It is the number one cause of death for black youth, for black men, for uh, number two cause of death for Latino men and black women. And so when we look at the, just the sheer numbers and how it's impacting certain populations, it, it tracks with every other public health crisis we've seen in our country. Um, it's actually, we've lost more lives to this than we did the opioid crisis. But when we saw those same numbers or you know, less numbers in that particular example uh, being lost, uh, our government responded with a comprehensive strategy that included resources, that included regulations, and it also included accountability on the folks who were, who were driving up uh, that crisis. 
And so what we're fighting for now is for our government to look at this more than just the hardware. I think for too long we have made this a Second Amendment debate, uh, a specific discussion about who should have access to this, to that, and the other, but not looking at this as the comprehensive crisis that it is. And when you look at it from that perspective, we have to think about how are we providing resources and services for survivors of gun violence? How are we providing uh, resources to help address the risk factors that lead to violence? And how do we start to center the people being harmed just as aggressively as we have centered the hardware that's doing the harm? Um, so I strongly believe that that is where we've broken down and failed is that we've gotten too focused on one part of the issue and not taking the comprehensive strategy that's needed. Um, what's encouraging is that the White House um, with this uh, administration um, has stepped up and did that. You know, President Biden stated in December of 2020 um, that this is a public health crisis and requires a public health response. And since then, he's committed $200 million in his fiscal year 2022 budget. He's made changes to 26 federal grant programs, including Medicaid. He's looked at how can we put uh, resources into programs, even like his American Jobs Plan, that prioritizes the communities that have been devastated by violence to ensure that they get the resources and opportunity um, from a jobs perspective, as well as these other health and, and uh, intervention focused strategies. So we're starting to see a, a shift, if you will, in how we think about this crisis and looking beyond just the hardware itself and beyond just law enforcement and a crime approach. Uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland himself said, this is not something that law enforcement can solve alone. And so we now have for the first time an attorney general that's pushing the entire government to work together at the federal level to address this crisis. Okay, you've you, uh, discussed the fact that uh, we uh, have had this endless constitutional debate on the Second Amendment. Yeah. Uh, I think it's worth pointing out uh, to our listeners that uh, 30 or 40 years ago, uh, the Supreme Court uh, interpreted uh, the uh, Constitution in a uh, the Second Amendment in a very strict way, uh, which meant uh, that essentially uh, it just applied to well-regulated militias, not gun control, uh, not, uh, you know, public gun ownership. But anyway, we're going to go to break now. When we get back from our break, we'll have more with uh, Craig Jackson Jr., who is Advocacy Director of the Community Justice Action Fund. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with more of Deadline DC uh, with Brad Bannon. If you miss Leslie on TV this week, catch up at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Follow Leslie on Twitter. Just go to www.twitter.com slash Leslie Marshall, and we'll be sure to share your tweets. Welcome back to Deadline DC, Brad Manning. In this half hour, we're discussing gun violence, and our guest is Greg Jackson, Jr., who is the National Advocacy Director of the Community Justice Action Fund. Uh, I want to point out to our radio listeners who are now back with us uh, that if you want to watch the show as well as listen to it, there are all sorts of vehicles for you to do that. You can see us on Periscope TV at periscope.tv front slash Brad Bannon. 
you can watch us on Facebook Live at tinyurl.com front slash BB Facebook Live and also on YouTube at tinyurl.com front slash Brad on YouTube. Uh, Craig, let me uh, Greg, let me ask you a pro- uh, question here. Uh, you mentioned in the uh, first segment of this interview that uh, gun violence is especially a uh, problem in communities of color. Can you discuss that, please? Yes. Um, right now, when we look at homicides specifically, um, over 76% of the victims are black or brown. Um, and it's, that trend has held since the early 2000s. And when we look at why this is happening, frankly, there are very clear risk factors that lead to folks uh, utilizing gun violence as a way to address conflict. And those risk factors have simply gotten worse due to government neglect, due to uh, lack of opportunity, and frankly, the the root causes that we know, like housing instability, uh, lack of economic opportunity, uh, inequality in, in forms of education and access to resources, they are directly correlated to to violence in any community across the world, frankly. Um, and so knowing that exists, we, we know that to focus on ending gun violence, again, it's not as simple as just focusing on the hardware. It's also looking at what leads to someone using lethal force and how do we reduce those risk factors to hopefully decline someone's uh, likelihood to, to act out violently. Okay, uh, let me ask you a question about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, first of all, let, let's put, you know, I mean, we have this problem in Congress where because of the filibuster rule in the Senate, uh, it's been impossible uh, to get any significant gun legislation passed. In fact, you know, we, ha- we have, we don't even have universal background checks. There are all sorts of loopholes in the process. If you want to purchase a gun, you can do so without a background check. Now, and there's been, you know, no action in Congress. Now, part of the problem, I think, is because it impacts disproportionately people of color. You know, if you talk to a uh, senator from New York um, or Ohio or Michigan, uh, they're going to be aware of the problem. But what do you say to a a senator, a Republican senator from a rural state like Wyoming and Montana, uh, where there aren't large communities of color, uh, where the rate for uh, gun violence is a lot lower? What do you say to someone like that to convince them about the need for quick action? Yeah, I mean, I think the main thing is that um, our government's number one job should be to keep us safe. You know, living in this country, the first part of our rights are our rights to be alive here. Um, And so anyone who's working at the federal level, I think, should be invested in keeping their communities safe, just like we did with uh, the COVID-19 pandemic just like we've done with the opioid crisis, just like we did with automobiles when we saw a huge spike in automobile accidents and manslaughter. And so we have to look at and hold our leaders accountable to addressing any crisis that is taking a, uh, a large amount of lives in our country. I mean, this has now become the number one cause of death for black youth, but it's growing. It's in the top five causes of death for all youth in this country. And so if we, will, if we believe in this country and believe in keeping our community safe, but ultimately our future safe, then everyone has some skin in the game. The last thing I will say, and I share this with Republican leaders and especially pro-gun advocates, you know, the biggest threat to responsible gun owners, you know, 
keeping their guns and, and, and keeping this sport or recreation or tradition alive is to ensure that you address the folks who are who are using this poorly and you address the crisis that is costing lives out of something that may be a part of your tradition or your family. And so I always encourage them that while you may not want to crack down on specific regulations, you still should be invested in solutions to reduce gun violence in other ways. Now, it seems to me your approach means a significant change uh, in the mindset that we've used to talk about gun violence. Uh, You know, people watch all these uh, uh, cop shows on TV uh, and see the police going after criminals and car chases and uh, shootings and everything. Uh, What you're talking about is, you know, changing the mindset completely away from that, it seems to me, and moving towards dealing with the causes of crime uh, rather than, you know, looking at the act, you know, the impact of, of the violence. So the question is, this to me seems like a big mental mind shift, a mind shift for the nation. Uh, how far ha- are we away from that? Are we making any progress to looking at prevention as opposed uh, to punishment? I, I think we're I think we're starting to shift. I mean, one biggest challenge, frankly, is the media. You know, the media consistently paints a picture of violence in black and brown communities as a crime scene. When in reality, yes, the the shooting itself is a crime scene, but 68% of homicides in the black community are not connected to any other crime. They're typically uh, moments of passion or interpersonal conflict that goes goes too far, frankly. And so by painting the picture of violence in our communities as connected to criminal activity and drugs and all of this is really reinforcing, uh, frankly, negative stereotypes and also... Uh, advancing policy that's very crime and law enforcement focused, but frankly, is not even addressing the majority of incidents that happen. Um, so we are st- we are starting to see a shift. I mean, the president is is leading out front with this. Um, he's already committed five billion dollars in his American Jobs Plan to invest in public health solutions and community based solutions. Um, he's already made changes to uh, pretty much every every government agency's look at gun violence. He's starting to shift to make sure that they're looking at this from a comprehensive approach. Um, And even with the COVID-19 relief funds, uh, guidance from the Department of Treasury and the Department of Education recommended that some of those funds be directed to public health solutions to address violence as part of our recovery through this pandemic. And so I think we're starting to see leaders at the top look at this from a more comprehensive space than just crime control. Um, But now we need cities and states and frankly, the general public to see it that way as well. Okay. Uh, Do you, I mean, obviously uh, this approach uh, has had an impact on Democrats like the president. Uh, We heard him talk about gun violence uh, at the beginning of the segment. uh, And I certainly hope that uh, your approach catches on because I do think we need new approaches. You know, the idea of 40,000 Americans getting killed every year from gun violence is is just ridiculous. I want to thank our guest in this segment. Greg Jackson Jr., who is uh, Advocate Advocacy Director for the Com- uh, Community Justice Action Fund, we'll back. We'll be back with more of Deadline DC and our provocative progressive political panel after these messages. So don't go anywhere. Uh, I'm staying here, and you should too.
Welcome back to the headlines. I have an uh, We're going to uh, start this half hour with a clip from the uh, Joe Biden calls him the former guy who spoke to a GOP audience in North Carolina over the weekend. That election will go down as the crime of the century, and our country is being destroyed by people who perhaps have no right to destroy it. Yeah, uh, that was um, Donald Trump, obviously, and he pill can't get over the fact that he's not president anymore. Uh, You know, I mean, the scary thing, the thing that I wonder about is whether he really believes he's still president or he's just saying that as a way way to gin up his followers and his fundraising machine. Uh, God only knows he probably believes it Uh, anyway. Just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water, Donald Trump emerged from the depths in a speech to North Carolina Republicans this weekend. The last few months have not been kind to the former guy. He remains unpopular because of his failed presidency. Uh, Last week, uh, he was uh, his ban on Facebook was extended for two years. Prosecutors in New York State, in New York City, have started a criminal investigation of the Trump organization. And the New York Times reports that he still harbors fantasies about returning to the White House in August. Trump hovers over the future of the Republican Party like a dark and threatening cloud that prevents his party from seeing the horizon. The GOP is whatever Donald Trump says it is, and that's a big problem because of the severe public distaste for him and his presidency. Uh, You can uh, read uh, the rest of this column in all my columns to the Hill at muckrack.com front slash Brad dash Bannon. And this half hour is brought to you by my company, Bannon communications research, which polls for progressive issue groups, uh, labor unions, and Democrats. Now it's time for our provocative progressive political panel. Our guest panelist today is Edwith Theogene, uh, who is the National Advocacy Director of Generation Progress. Uh, Edwith, uh, the Generation Progress uh, is the youth engagement arm of the of American Progress. In this role, Edwith works to develop and lead efforts to translate the experiences of young adults into concrete actions that advance progressive policies and increase voter turnout. Joining Edwith on the panel today is on the progressive provocative progressive political panel is liberal activist Mark Rimaldi. Mark has worked for several Democratic presidential candidates, including Joe Biden. He is also active in efforts to uh, reform campaign spending uh, and efforts to promote cancer research. Uh, Edwith's Twitter handle is who is Edwith, that's who is E-D-W-I-T-H, and Mark's Twitter handle is Mark J. Grimaldi, that's G-R-I-M-A-L-D-I. Uh, okay, let's start with the uh, former guy. Uh, I hate, you know, I pretty much went without watching any political shows on TV on the on cable news 
for four years because I could not stand the sight of the man and I could not listen to the, uh, to, to the sound of his voice. And I basically gave up all those cable TV shows that I used to watch religiously because I just couldn't stand seeing and hearing him. So um, he's back in the news. He made a big speech to North Carolina Republicans over the weekend. Uh, and so I had to go cold turkey on the cable TV shows again over the weekend. So I didn't have to sound here. You know, and as much as I hate seeing him or hearing him. I think it's probably a good thing that he's visible again because he's really very unpopular with the American public, especially in contrast with Joe Biden. And so am I should I be happy or sad that Donald Trump is back in the limelight? Edwith? I mean, I'm sad that he's back in the limelight. Like, I feel like, why are we talking about him? I feel more upset and flustered about Manchin's comment against the For the People Act, his recent op-ed, than I... Yeah, we'll talk about that. Yeah, but I'm just saying that, like, there's so many other things to focus on besides Trump. Like, I would like him to dissolve into a relic of our past and for us to focus on, like, more present-day and urgent things. Or even how ridiculous it was. I don't know if you remember recently, someone was having a wedding in West Palm Beach and Donald Trump happened to like saunter in and like make some comments about the Republican Party. Like I'd rather hear the funny news that like really trivializes him even more. But yeah, I think I'm sad that he's back in the news. I'm, I don't want us to talk about him. I want us to forget about him, but just to remember his impact so that we can engage and mobilize against a presidency like that ever existing again. Okay. Mark, should I be happy or sad that Donald Trump's back in the limelight? Oh, you're muted, Mark. Oh, I don't hear Mark. I always do that because I'm so used to being <laughs> muted when I'm producer Mark. Oh, yeah. I have to put my other hat on. So, okay. um, you know, I I think I learned the lesson last time of thinking, oh, it's, it's better that he's in the limelight because he's saying all these asinine things and he's so dangerous and everyone will see that and no one will for, fall for it. But last time I thought that was going to happen, you know, all these people were duped by it. And yes, you know, some people learned, thankfully, as we saw by the election numbers last time, but he still had something like 75 million people vote for him. And there's still people who are buying his lies about the election hook, line and sinker. If you look at January 6th and the Capitol insurrection, so I think, you know, I'm also disappointed. I think both of you articulated how I'm feeling very, very well. It was almost as if you were reading my mind. Um, so I would echo both of those sentiments, but just warn people, you know, who maybe think, oh, it's good that he's out there and we can compare him to, you know, what a great leader that President Biden has been, especially when you compare it to the chaos of the Trump presidency. Yes, I'm sure there's some of that going on, but I think it's too much of a double-edged sword to be, you know, happy about it at all. Yeah, this is one of those uh, classic incidents, uh, examples of where I'm torn. Um, as a citizen, I, I just hate the man and I hate seeing him and um, I hate listening to him. But as a political strategist, uh, I think he presents a grave and deadly danger to the Republican Party. 
um, as long as the Republican Party doesn't move on for Trump and there's no sign of that happening, uh, I think he's going to lead them to disaster. But uh, anyway, well, let's uh, talk about the subject Edward brought up. Uh, one of the uh, big news uh, stories over the weekend uh, was that uh, Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia wrote an op-ed for his uh, hometown newspaper, the uh, paper in Charleston, West Virginia, the Daily Digest, I think. Uh, and he said two things loud and clear. Uh, first, he would not support the For the People Act, uh, which has already been passed by the House of Representatives and now is uh, pending in the Senate. Uh, for those of you, well, first of all, uh, Edward, why don't you explain to people what the For the People Act is? Yeah, the For the People Act is a historic bill. Um, like you said, it passed the House, and right now it's in the Senate to figure out what's going to happen next with the bill. But it would be a comprehensive voting rights reform, pro-democracy reform bill that would basically expand access to the ballot box, um, like change campaign finance and get dark money out of politics. Um, it would actually provide a lot of pro-democracy like reform um, entities out there for folks. And a lot of the provisions that we saw happened because of the pandemic that really expanded the electorate and supported people to vote safely um, and to have their vote recognized would be put in place if this bill were to become law. So it would address redistricting and making sure that like we are the ones who are putting people in office and not big companies and corporations are putting people in office. Um, so it really just changes the dynamic of how democracy would function and work within this country. And it's like widely approved um, everywhere. And I don't even know. I want to jump in and just say that like the only place like part of Manchin's op-ed was that he doesn't want this to move unless there's bipartisan support and he needs like 10 Republicans. And I think the reality is that this bill is like widely accepted and valued by everyone across party lines. And the only place that it doesn't have bipartisan support is in D.C. because Republicans are not moving on this. So I think. Oh, go ahead. OK, we're going to go to break now. Uh, but we come back from break. We will have more of the provocative progressive political panel with our guest, Edward Theogene from Generation Progress and progressive activist Mark Grimaldi. Don't go anywhere. We'll be back uh, very soon for more of Deadline D.C. If you miss Leslie on TV this week, catch up at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. We are in the midst of our provocative progressive political panel. Our guests today are Edward Theogene, who is the director of advocacy at Generation Progress. Uh, you should check out the Generation Progress website to find out what kind of work it does and what kind of work Edward does. Uh, we're also with us is uh, our executive producer, our esteemed executive producer, uh, and progressive activist Mark Grimaldi. Mark, let me ask you the question I just asked Edwith. Uh, Senator Manchin's uh, 
opposition to the uh, filibuster, which came in an op-ed this week, but he's been saying this for months, so it's not exactly uh, big news. Uh, it really, besides putting the uh, For the People Act in, in a grave situation, and I mean that as sort of a double entendre, uh, it jeopardizes a lot of uh, Biden initiatives uh, on gun control uh, and a host of other things. So in light of uh, Senator Manchin's opposition to the filibuster, and I doubt he's going to change his mind after he's broadcasted uh, his feelings in his hometown newspaper, uh, what does Joe Biden do? I mean, uh, there are some people who think basically, uh, well, this is this is what I think, Mark, and let me you react to that. Um, I think tell us what you think. I think in terms of uh, there probably will be some kind of infrastructure pa- package uh, passed by the Senate. I don't know how much. Uh, but there will be some kind. My theory is basically after that, uh, Joe Biden is going to have a tough time getting much of anything uh, through the Senate unless it has broad bipartisan appeal. Now, my theory is, Mark, and if you want to disagree with me, feel free, is that what Joe Biden has to do between now and the midterm elections next year is basically to the make an argument to the American public uh, that uh, the pandemic uh, is slowing, uh, the economy is picking up, thanks to my efforts on both fronts. And if you want me to continue this good work, you have to give me bigger a bigger Democratic majority in the Senate next year. But it doesn't really, you know, doesn't really help very much for, you know, getting any legislation passed through the end of between now and the midterm elections. Mark, your feelings? I think that's a very realistic um prediction um unfortunately for those of us who are concerned about our democracy because there's a great danger that these um voter uh, restrictions that are being passed in republican state houses around the country and in places like uh, florida arizona georgia um it's going to make it hard for the voters to have access to the ballot box to get those people elected that the president will be asking to vote for Democratic senators. Um, And I think that there's a grave danger that if these voting restrictions are allowed to play out and it restricts the voting population and then Republicans take back uh, the Senate or the House next year, in part thanks to these restrictions, I don't know the next time that the Democrats will be able to win back the House and the Senate at the same time and get some of these initiatives passed. So I think um, Mondaire Jones, the Congressman Mondaire Jones, said it really well today. Um, He said, I want to get the quote right about Senator Manchin, quote, he should not want to be known as the senator who blocked voting rights and undermined American democracy. And I think he's right. That's exactly what this will turn out to be. So, I mean, if I was a betting man, I would bet that, um, Senator Manchin will, you know, stay put with his position, but I don't think that's set in stone. I think that, you know, people give him a chance. The president gives him a chance. Okay. You think you can bring along 10 Republicans? Go ahead. Show me that you can get bipartisanship. And if he can get none or one, then I think the president should make a final push saying, look, you tried your way. 
now we try this way. Um, you know, even if you just want to eliminate the filibuster just for this democracy reform, for instance, you know, something to that effect. Because I think, you know, if Senator Manchin thinks that the Republicans won't turn around and eliminate the filibuster once they're in power, I think, you know, he's kidding himself. I mean, they already did it for Supreme Court justice nominees. So why wouldn't they do it for their next big push? Um, that's my opinion on it. Can I make a uh, point? Go yeah. ahead, Edwith. Yeah, I think it's uh, you had said that Manchin is in support of passing H.R. 4, the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, um, but he's opposed to like the filibuster. So if he really cared about supporting minorities and discrimination against individuals, he should care about the filibuster because the filibuster has Jim Crow grounding, was essentially created to protect slave owners. Um, it's been a tool to block progress for years. And just like you're saying, Mark, that like, um, even if we got rid of, we need to protect democracy reform and protect uh, the way that our country is focusing. So I just feel like how can, I just see the hypocrisy of like, how can you say that you really care about voting rights and care about discriminatory laws when you're in support and or on the fence around the filibuster, which is so grounded in like our slave history? Well, you know, Ed, with a lot of progressives, including myself, are very frustrated uh, and feeling very down about, you know, the prospects of the country moving forward uh, because of, you know, the roadblocks in the Senate, the filibuster. Uh, I'm sure you talk to progressives all the time who are frustrated and angry. Uh, what do you tell them? About the filibuster? Well, about the Senate in action in general, including the filibuster. I mean, everyone's pissed, right? Like, everyone's very angry. There's been so many bills. The House has been working very hard, even from last Congress to this, and we just have bills sitting there. Everyone has thrown their weight, the majority of us, behind the For the People Act. So this is really disheartening to see someone who's, like, on our side say that they don't want to support this bill that has such widespread support. So there's a lot of concern there. And even in the progressive space, a lot of folks are on the fence about what to do about the filibuster itself, right? Some people are in support of it and some people are opposed to it. So it requires a lot of deep conversation. Um, so what do I say to folks? I'm very open to hear people's side of it. But even as someone who has a background of working in the repro space, where uh, we've seen the filibuster sort of work in our favor, I still don't consider that to be a win, considering that the Supreme Court is now taking up um, a court case that can sort of like strip away a lot of the things that Roe v. Wade has offered us. So there's still like all these impending threats around reproductive rights where we've seen the filibuster like sort of support that. Um, and I'm speaking personally, not from my organizational standpoint around the filibuster, but I think it's, it's just really frustrating from the young people perspective we are really upset. Like we don't understand this concept of bipartisanship. We've been living in this polarizing, we've come up through our own understanding of governance with all of these polarizing aspects between Democrats and Republicans. And we just wanna see progress. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's true. Well, let me ask you another question. We've already had one victim of the filibuster and the House of Representatives passed a bill to create a commission uh, to investigate the uh, right-wing uh, takeover of the Capitol on January 6th. And uh, the House essentially uh, killed the bill uh, with the threat of a filibuster. Let me ask you this question. 
uh, Senator McConnell, the minority leader, and I love saying Senator McConnell, the minority leader, uh, said that we have all sorts of law enforcement agencies investigating the takeover, so there's no need of a congressional investigation. Uh, is there the need for a congressional investigation? The House, I can uh, you know, do something to create some kind of commission to investigate it. They won't have, won't be joint commission with the Senate, but it still could be a commission. Is there, are there things that still need uh, to see the light of day or we are the law enforcement taking a good care of that? I mean, I personally feel that this is a slap in the face to show how unimportant and how much this is not a priority for our government. Um, it's an insurrection. Our government was essentially overtoppled incited by like white supremacist, by a problematic president and problematic, I think is the least, the smallest word yes, that I can problematic think Problematic is kind. Yes. <laughs> exactly. So I think the fact that they basically have filibustered this out is trying to remove it from public consciousness, but the trauma, the harm of that, the way that we felt when we woke up that day, um, I lived in DC. So even though I wasn't there at the insurrection, but just like my own personal experience being in D.C. and having family concerned about me and then just hearing all the stories that have come out, it is concerning to me that our government is not take not prioritizing this to the level that I think most Americans agree that it should be. Yeah, I have a friend who lives uh, right near the Capitol. And um, first thing I did was, are you all right? <laughs> I've watched the thing on CNN. Scary. Um, okay. Uh, anyway, I, uh, that's it for Deadline DC today. Uh, I want, first, I want to uh, thank today's guest. Our guests were Greg Jackson Jr. of the Community Justice Action Fund. Uh, he joined us to talk about gun violence. And today on the Provocative Progressive Political Panel, our guests were Edward Theogene uh, from Generation Progress and our own uh, progressive activist, Mark Grimaldi. Leslie Marshall will be back tomorrow, so listen to her. Be safe and be strong in these troubled times. And make sure you tune in to Deadline DC Mondays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, or you can watch the podcast anytime on periscope.tv front slash Brad Bannon. Uh, thanks to all of you for being on the show. Thanks for all of you uh, listening and watching. And I look forward to seeing you back or hearing you back uh, next week. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.